0: Greetings everybody out there in Dreamland. Namaste and
1: shalom. Iron sharpens iron and a friend sharpens a friend. You are listening to the Beyond Top Secret Texan. I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Broadcasting to you from the coast with the most. The Gulf Coast. The third coast of Texas. The darkest truths from the darkest web need to be told. And you must listen
0: to the beyond top secret Texan.
2: other world capitals. While Paris honors Napoleon, London, Nord Nelson, and Washington Lincoln, Berlin is a city of where much of its historical landmarks are built on pedestal of shame and guilt for the mistakes of past generations. Walking through the monument to the Jewish victims of the Holocaust, just near the Brandenburg Gate, with the massive American embassy looming atop, it is a vast plot of land filled with 2,711 concrete stelae arranged in a grid pattern on a sloping field that serves as a reminder of the collective historical guilt of the German people. As do the other memorials that lay just between the Brandenburg Gate and the Reichstag. Even memorials to Berlin and Germany itself, being conquered by the Soviet Union, who then raped and pillaged the city, can be found again in the prominent position just between the Brandenburg Gate and the Reichstag. World War II fundamentally changed Germany forever, and more importantly, how it sees itself within the community of nations. In reality, Berlin is not only the capital of a vessel state, but has been one of the strongest outposts of American hegemony in Europe for decades. Many in Germany have long understood that we are a country that has not had full control over our foreign affairs since 1945. U.S. bases on our soil make us an indisputable and indispensable party, to any war that the United States embarks upon, whether we wish to admit it or not. This was the case during American invasions of the Middle East, incursions in Africa as well as in the current conflict in Ukraine. Rammstein Air Base has served as a crucial hub for the American military and its global force projection for decades. And as Germany is an American client state, we are pressed to provide contributions, or tribute, if you like, to any military adventure that the United States embroils itself in. With the current conflict, the US Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, demanded at conference held at Rammstein Air Base that German tanks, among other weapons and supplies, to be transferred to Ukraine for use against Russia. The will of the people, like in most countries, is irrelevant as almost half of the German public was against sending the tanks and heavy arms demanded by Washington to Ukraine. The United States has also long claimed the right to decide for Germany its energy policy and whether it can independently be allowed to build pipelines like the Nord Stream 1 and 2, and actually placed sanctions to delay or at best halt its construction. Coincidentally, Soon after the war began in Ukraine, thousands of kilometers away, Nord Stream 2 was severely damaged in an act of sabotage. Interestingly, while the U.S. denies damaging the pipeline that it never wanted to see built, the former Polish foreign minister thanked the U.S. on Twitter for damaging the pipeline before hastily deleting the tweet. It has since been revealed by journalist Seymour Hirsch that it was indeed the US that sabotaged the pipeline, which is not only a betrayal of its relationship with Germany, but in fact an act of war against both Germany and Russia. It is important to note that even though prices for energy have soared, we Germans do support the Ukrainians and their fight against Russia, However, a clear majority believe that Germany has already done enough. The main reasons that we no longer want anything to do with this war are noted the historic memory of German aggression and the collective guilt of our nation, but also of the cost of hosting and integrating another massive wave of refugees. Europe now has the highest energy prices in the world and Germany, the industrial engine of Europe, is beginning to grind to a halt, with many companies now migrating and setting up branches in the United States and in other areas with lower energy costs. What is clear is that the United States is not interested in any kind of negotiation or of ending the war in Ukraine. And as the war drags on, we understand that it is American industry American arms manufacturers and the American energy sector that will continue to profit handsomely the longer the war goes on. So if Germany does not excise itself as a political vessel of the United States and continues to follow the dictates of Washington, what is clear is that large swaths of German industry will be destroyed. Much of the population will become impoverished and Germany could become embroiled in a larger war possibly nuclear that we are now helping to escalate.
0: In matter, together, we'll be able to start the difficult war of rebuilding Ukraine, our cities, our economy, our infrastructure. It is already clear that these will be the largest economic project of our time in Europe. It is obvious that American business can become the locomotive that will once again push forward global economic growth we have already managed to attract attention and have cooperation with such giants of the international financial and investment world as blackrock jp morgan and golden Sachs. such american brands as starling or western house have already become part of our ukrainian way you're brilliant defense systems such as high mars or bradley's are already uniting our history of freedom with your enterprises we are waiting for patriots we are looking closely at abrams thousands of such examples are possible and everyone can become a big business by working with ukraine in all sectors, from weapons and defense to construction, from communication to agriculture, from transport to IT, from banks to medicine.
2: We also understand that when this war ends, as all wars do, it will be Europe and Germany in particular that will be responsible financially through direct aid to rebuild the smoldering wreck that is Ukraine. And it will be Blackrock, Vanguard, and J.P. Morgan that will reap the financial rewards of reconstruction contracts that our nation will oblige to fund. It will also be Europe and again Germany that will have to pay the price of hosting the millions of those that have been displaced from this conflict. The only option for Germany is to detether itself from Washington and carve out our own path that is in the best interests of our citizens. Something that we have not done for decades. Or to continue along for another 80 years, taking our marching orders from the United States. But the world is changing. Whether Germany will rejoin the world nations on its own terms is yet to be seen.
1: in his 1992 book The End of History and the Last Man American political scientist Francis Fukuyama argued that with the fall of the USSR that humanity had reached not just the passing of a particular period in post-war history but the end of history and as such the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. This, of course, was not true, but it was the year 2022 that will mark the end of the post-Cold War era and that of American unipolarity. In that, last year marked the end of an era and the beginning of a new geopolitical era. The current military conflict in Ukraine represents the event that will mark the end of the world order that was established in the wake of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And the seeds of the newly emerging multipolar world will, like so many instances throughout history, find their genesis in the collapse of the last geopolitical world order. In the 1990s, the United States was drunk on its own global hegemony, that it had shown to the world as the last man standing at the end of the Cold War of the inevitability of its own ideology. It was in the first and second decade after the end of the Soviet Union that the United States actively promoted free trade and globalization, as it saw these systems as a vehicle for other nations to join the world order that it controlled. The 1990s and 2000s saw nations like China and Russia incorporated into the global supply chain, if not the new geopolitical world order, and they did find their niches, China as a source of cheap labor and manufacturing, and Russia as a peripheral economy that fed cheap raw materials and energy into Western economies. However, it became clear that in 2022, this vacation from the historic norm was over, and the end of history, as Fukuyama had called it, was over. The world now has resumed its usual pattern of competing powers using everything at their disposal to vie for power and position. And the unwitting architect of this global power and geopolitical transformation was the United States itself as the globalized world that it had championed was not unfolding as it predicted. And the reason is simple. Firstly, the military adventures in the Islamic world Well, they did nothing to bring about the transformation or democratization of the region. But more importantly, many of the countries that had integrated themselves into the American-led global order, also like many of the Islamic countries that the United States did invade, did not adopt American values as anticipated, and instead became regional competitors and resurgent rivals rather than client states that America had hoped for, Russia and China in particular.
3: Every generation has had to defeat democracy's moral foes. That's the way of the world, For the world is imperfect as we know, where the appetites and ambitions of a few forever seek to dominate the lives and liberty of many.
1: And as a result of these unfolding set of circumstances, the United States has clearly transformed its geopolitical stance as the leader of the globalized post-Cold War order to one of great power competition, one of provoking geopolitical conflicts and attempting to reassert control over its wayward client states. The clear aim of American foreign policy over the past 10 years is not only to disrupt but to destroy regional integration and, more importantly, to isolate rising regional powers. In Asia, it has been exerting maximum pressure to force its vassal states to decouple themselves from the targeted rival in East Asia, that being China, as well as its constant prodding of the Taiwan issue. In the case of Europe, it is attempting to close the door on the integration of the continent, but especially of the integration of the industry of Germany with the energy and resources of Russia. And this is best exemplified by the uncompromising expansion of NATO, and in particular into Ukraine, which holds virtually no strategic value to the bloc, while being extremely important to the security concerns of Russia, which is now then ignited the conflict that is currently raging,
3: and threatens to return to decades of war that ravaged Europe before the international.
4: Tens of thousands of people gathered together in a march organized by Polish nationalists to celebrate the nation's Independence Day. However, this past year Warsaw's liberal and globalist mayor Rafał Trzaskowski opposed the event. After the march, he spoke at a news conference of how he was disturbed by the anti-Ukrainian and anti-EU messages being sent out by the crowd. In Western media, the march is decried as an expression of outmoded nationalism. But for many of those that attend, including those that bring their small children, the march is seen as a way of showing their patriotism. In the mass of people in a sea of Poland's red and white flag, many spark flowers and chant nationalist slogans. There were also those that chanted anti LGBTQ slogans, including Stop Rainbow propaganda. While Poland as a nation has rallied to the cause of Ukraine and a fight with Russia, many at the demonstration expressed their anger and voiced a demand to stop the Ukrainization of Poland. There were also those that exclaimed their anger towards Russian President Vladimir Putin. This situation, that of strong nationalism in Poland, is unique on the continent, as much of the western part of the European Union rapidly transforms along multicultural lines. Poland wishes to remain a nation for the Poles. Polish nationalism has found the nation at many times at odds with the Brussels on the issue of mass immigration. And thus Poland's right wing populist government has long been on the political fringes of the EU. Mam informacje, że jest
5: gotowe,
0: uformowane.
4: This has much to do with the fact that historically there have been times when Poland was completely wiped off the map, absorbed by other continental powers and their homeland subjugated by outsiders. Many Poles are very aware what it means not to have a free, sovereign state. Many understand what it means not to have independence. It's for this reason, in a poll taken in June 2022, that only 2% of polls hold a favorable view of Russia, while 97% have unfavorable opinion, which was the most negative views of Russia among all countries included in that international survey. This was a stark decrease from other polls from previous decades that had somewhere in the range of 20 to 40% of polls that had a favorable view of Russia. For this reason, Poland's right wing populist government has been embraced by both Brussels and Washington as a linchpin of Western support and strategy for Ukraine. The Kremlin has stated that Polish leaders are a vassal of the United States, gripped by pathological Russophobia, and a country as a community of political imbeciles. What is true since the outset of the conflict is that Poland has now become the pivot around which Western solidarity with Ukraine as well as the fury revolved around the county, Washington has doubled the number of US troops on the ground, as well as dispatching Patriot missiles to the country. Poland has become an indispensable staging point for the supply of arms and ammunition to Ukraine, and Warsaw has become the center to which all humanitarian, diplomatic and military assistance to the Ukraine passes through. Poland worth of being the eastern flank of NATO, and in such close proximity to the current conflict that it could be inadvertently drawn to the conflict. Poles have rallied to the Ukrainian cause, and Poland has welcomed large numbers of refugees, but there are also lingering tensions over a Polish Ukrainian ethnic conflict during World War II. The massacre during the war saw up to 100,000 Poles killed during an ethnic cleansing operation led by the Ukrainian insurgent army, with the support of parts of the local Ukrainian population against the Polish minority. Most of the victims were women and children. Today, most Poles regard the event as a genocide, but this is denied in Ukraine the Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki declared that the terrible hatred that then guided the Ukrainian hand cannot be forgotten because there will be no reconciliation based on the falsehood, based on forgetfulness, based on a lie and that the situation today offers a great opportunity and starting point for reconciliation because at the hands of Russia Ukraine is experiencing this hatred, this terrible nationalism to which it succumbed itself 80 years ago He also stated that our nations are also brothers and there should be no borders or barriers between us. The unity of our nations must last forever. It is well understood that Ukraine will not be joining NATO or the EU anytime in the foreseeable future and that in the future Poland could be the partner that Ukraine needs. It would not also be outside the realm of possibility that the price of that partnership would be the return of land in Western Ukraine that was previously under Polish sovereignty as payment. Whatever the future holds, the close partnership with Hungary, whose Prime Minister Viktor Orban shares the same views on process with his Polish counterparts, but has taken a more practical approach when it comes to diplomatic vitriol and economic sanctions against Russia has been sundered. The geopolitical sense are shifting, and Poland is looking to cement its place in the new multipolar world that is emerging. The next question is: did you
3: underestimate Putin? And would you still describe him the way that you did in the summer as a worthy adversary? At the time, he was, I made it clear as an adversary, and I said he was worthy. I didn't underestimate him. And I've read most of everything he's written. Did you read the, I shouldn't say I'm not in wise guy. The you, you heard the speech he made almost an hour's worth of speeches why he was going into Ukraine. He has much larger ambitions in Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. That's what this is about. And I think that his uh, his ambitions uh, are are completely contrary to the place where the rest of the world has arrived.
1: From the outset, in February 2022, the legacy media in the West, which has for decades acted as a mouthpiece for power rather than a check, has spun a narrative of Ukraine being a victim of an unprovoked attack based on the desire of an expansionist Vladimir Putin who is bent on conquest and the resurrection of a neo-USSR, and if not checked, he will seek to conquer Europe in its entirety. Putin is portrayed as an irrational, paranoid, and evil Hitler-esque figure who, through his sinister machinations, attacked neighboring Ukraine for no other reason than to satiate his own ego and imperial lust for conquest. And he, like Hitler, as it is spun in the media, must be stopped by the collective West if peace is to return to the continent. The working narrative is that Putin is evil and that the virtuous West is coming to the rescue of Ukraine to confront tyranny and aggression. But is this portrayal of Mr. Putin and that of the US and its European allies and the road to war in Ukraine correct? While it's understandable that the narrative spun within the controlled legacy media is being presented as one of good versus evil, one of cowardice versus valor, one charged with emotionalism, and of those caught in the crossfire. It's very hard to see the images coming out of the battlefield and not be horrified by them. As we have seen over the past several decades, the employment of spin by the controlled media has allowed a significant portion of the Western population to see this conflict within the binary of good versus evil. And based solely on emotionalism, and absolutely bereft of any kind of context. It goes without saying that the loss of life on all sides is very regrettable, but this conflict was totally avoidable. Jingoistic explanations for very complex sets of historical and geopolitical events that have evolved over decades and have brought us to this point Well, these explanations do not help us understand the situation with any kind of clarity. As has happened in every war in living memory, the controlled media is used to pacify the population with the approved narratives. Prior to February 24th, 2022, Ukraine was almost indistinguishable from Russia. Both were, and still are, thoroughly corrupt ex-Soviet states. Both leaned toward authoritarianism. Both were allergic to the Western narrative of social progress, while this is changing at least officially in the Ukraine, most likely as a result of the billions being provided in aid. Neither had an independent judiciary or organized opposition parties or free and fair elections. Ukraine, as well as Russia, lacks the rule of law. This all changed post the 24th of February 2022, where Ukraine was suddenly transformed, at least in official rhetoric, as narratives being spun of it being a beacon of Western values and a nation led by a dashing war hero president that was, without warning or reason, attacked by its rabid and land-hung. Neighbor. Similar to the reporting in the American-led invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq, similar to the conflicts in Syria and Libya, the controlled media quickly lost whatever journalistic integrity they pretend to have, and all semblance of balanced reporting vanished. While one still can find articles to this day on the corruption in Ukraine and the siphoning off of aid to that country that is making some monstrously rich, while soldiers on both sides are being slaughtered, these are not the stories that make the front page, nor to the talking points of televised news. And these stories are also heavily suppressed on social media. But since the outset of the conflict, there have been stories propagated in the controlled media as well as on social media that lean toward the absolutely absurd. For example, that of the Ukrainian pensioner who received a medal for supposedly shooting down a Russian fighter jet with an antique rifle. That of the Ghost of Kiev, a purported Ukrainian jet hotshot that shot down so many Russian aircraft That a manga comic was created in his honor that became wildly popular in the country. Ukraine, while having to admit that the ghost of Kiev was totally fabricated, the power of fictional entertainment was not lost on the Western backers of Ukraine. In fact, after a series of memes that reflected on what Marvel superheroes would do if they were called to fight in Ukraine, well the West took notice. What's clear is that there are so many that have been marinated in entertainment for the majority of their lives that reality is sometimes a hard pill to swallow. Think of all the grown men you see in YouTube videos surrounded by figurines and merchandise of fictional heroes and villains. Most of these people actually see change as coming too slow struggle of almost any kind can now be linked to fictional heroes, as the solutions generally presented come without much actual thinking, as there are clear heroes and clear villains. Sadly, many in the West see issues of all stripe in this defined binary. NATO NATO The largest military organization on the planet, for its part, clearly understood the power of fictional entertainment and its use to help spin its narratives. In an official account of the military organization, and this is an actual tweet and the link can be found in the description, NATO on Twitter proclaims that Ukraine is hosting one of the great epics of this century. We are Harry Potter and William Wallace, the Navi and Han Solo. We're escaping from Shawshank and blowing up the Death Star. We are fighting the Harkonnens and challenging Thanos. Or put another way, NATO are the heroes and Russians are the evil Lord Voldemort, King Edward Longshanks, the evil humans in Avatar and Darth Vader. NATO are the Atreides and the Avengers. And this is kind of fitting, as the term orcs is liberally applied to the rank-and-file soldiers across social media. Or put simply, the Russians are the villains. the use of entertainment and of fictional characters in war propaganda is nothing new. Things have changed since 1943 and Daffy Duck. And of course, the next best thing would be to allow people to take part in such an information war themselves. Of course, while propagating official establishment rhetoric. In fact, people outside the conflict can even take part in it. Now that there is a service that allows armchair warriors to paint special messages on shells that will be fired at Russians or at the orcs, as they are now commonly referred to, SignMyRocket.com advertises its services as allowing anyone to have a chance to send a greeting to the orcs with your text written on an artillery shell. They also boast that you can receive a photo of a signed shell with your order and text it to you And you can even sign an M777 howitzer. In the end, orcs, Darth Vader, the Avengers. This truly is a war that is the same and like no other that has preceded it. And the pity here is that this is what the carnage in Ukraine on both sides has been reduced to for public consumption in the West. Simplistic explanations for complex matters are what is peddled by the establishment and the media that they control. And there's a reason for it. Full spectrum dominance of the flow of information is crucial as it allows for the propagation of correct think on issues and the manufacture of consent. NPR, the BBC, CBC, ABC and many other broadcasters throughout the Western world are state-funded news organizations. But even in the lead up to the war in Ukraine, big tech social media platforms only tagged Russian outlets like RT and Sputnik for being the same. But since the outbreak of the war, Russian news outlets and only Russian news outlets have been banned in many Western countries and across the board on social media. Of course, Russian outlets like their counterparts in the West will be giving their side of the issues, but the need for RT's ban, for example, in the West should be expected. Making sure all information is approved is the first step in an information war. The next best thing would be to allow people to take part in such an information war. Of course, while propagating official establishment rhetoric. What these emotionally charged and simplistic arguments do is yet again show us the function of the controlled corporate legacy media, and that is of being the propagandistic arm of global finance, capital, and of the unipolar world that is now unironically crumbling. And what is a fact is that the current narrative that is being peddled is in fact a post-facto explanation of both Russia and Putin but as well of the actions of the United States and NATO. And this narrative has been conjured post-24th of February 2022. Since the opening of hostilities between Russia and NATO, with Ukraine being used as the proverbial ring for the match, it's really not that difficult to explain how this set of circumstances came about. The real shock of the current conflict was not the invasion itself, but the hubris that led to it and of the inability of policymakers in the West and the United States in particular to understand the very real security concerns that Russia had and it had articulated to them over and over and over again. Moscow was clearly told that its concerns about NATO expansion and the militarization of post-Soviet areas had no legitimate basis, and so they were simply ignored. The simple fact is, the expansion of NATO, which is heralded by the West as defensive in nature, has long been perceived as an offensive alliance by Russia and has led to the actions of Russia that are now, ironically, being called expansionist. When the war did go hot, Europe allied itself with Washington and proceeded to embargo authoritarian Russian energy. It then went on to replace it with vastly more expensive American hydrocarbons of freedom, as it were. And this pushed up energy prices through the roof, and is now crushing the continent's industry as well as its consumers. Joe Biden was very clear before the war even started that Nord Stream's fate would be decided by the United States when he stated clearly that if Russia invades, that means tanks or troops crossing the border of Ukraine, then there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. Europe has had to quietly swallow the fact that the United States, and in perhaps concert with Norway, being the culprit that sabotaged the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And to add insult to injury, several EU states have attempted to help cover up this sabotage and the inconvenient truths that it raises to shield their greatest ally. What all of these decisions have shown is that the European Union places blind ideology and subservience to Washington before the interests of the people of its own continent. Put bluntly, Europe is now totally dependent upon the United States and its hegemony and is subsidizing American geopolitical interests at the expense of its own Exactly 200 years ago, the framework of the Monroe Doctrine was declared, which, in essence, is the security claim asserted by the United States over virtually the entire Western Hemisphere. This cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy is well understood, and Washington has made clear to the world for centuries that were for a potential foe to place its strategic assets anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, well, that it is of great import to the security concerns of the nation. And should this potential rival cross this red line of the Monroe Doctrine, any such violation of such is a legitimate reason for war. The Cuban Missile Crisis is the best modern example of this. We now know that the
6: Soviet Union Not content with Dr. Castro's oath of fealty. Not content with the destruction of Cuban independence. Not content with the extension of Soviet power into the Western Hemisphere. Not content with a challenge to the inter-American system and to the United Nations Charter, has decided to transform Cuba into a base for communist aggression, into a base for putting all of the Americans
7: under the nuclear gun. The United States' answer to what Adlai Stevenson termed Soviet blackmail in Cuba was a quarantine of all offensive weapons being shipped from Russia to that island fortress. The U.S. threw up a steel fence prepared to stop any vessel carrying materials of war. In Cuba itself, 100,000 men were put under emergency orders as they had been during past invasion scares. The waterfront in Havana and along other parts of the coast bristled with gun emplacements as the Cuban regime waited to see what their bosses in the Kremlin were to do. The United States went to the UN Security Council for a resolution calling for a withdrawal of all offensive weapons from Cuba. A delegation from the island heard Dutant call on both sides for a three-week freeze. But the Secretary General was told that President Kennedy wants the missiles scrapped first. And in conclusion,
6: it urgently recommends that the United States and the Soviet Union confer promptly on measures to remove the existing threat to the security of the Western Hemisphere and the peace of the world and to report thereon
1: to the security council. It's very important to understand, with regards to Russia, that the United States and its NATO allies have not only actively disregarded these policies when it comes to Russia, and have done so for decades, but have unequivocally stated in their own actions that Russia's security interests are of no interest to them, And thus, the Russians have simply been ignored for decades. As a mental exercise, imagine Russia or China, or in an alternate universe, Iran or North Korea, placing military bases and assets with not only first-strike capabilities, but then for years conducted massive military exercises along the northern border with Canada or the southern border with Mexico. Would this ever be tolerated by Washington? Should such a scenario, as far-fetched as it may seem, ever materialize, the United States would be quick to declare war and its justification would be that the invasion of Canada or Mexico would be defensive in nature, and a response to adversarial foreign power encroachment on American security interests and of crossing the red line of the Monroe
3: Doctrine.
5: Know how she managed to conquer electronic bracelets, and without any passport, she crossed the border and she's here to die. My aggression. Ten, co hady zardousil dřív, než řekl mami. Je tady, ten jenž dráhu stvořil mležnými supy. Je tady, ten, co lva si oblékl, pohleď do klamy a uvidíš brzkou sílu muže, co s kvadesáti ženami sdílal nože. Dveře, otevře si to Ten jehož jméno pořád omíláme do kola. Vedajile mě odětšený činou pán. Ten jehož moc že naše seny tržela. Tve se, je si do Ten jehož jméno pořád do This views. This stop kill chain. This for a good trip is going to you This million views. This stop kill This 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 million views. This chain. This a good this song, a Cock,
8: of Prague, one would barely note the discontent brewing under the surface, within this most beautiful of European cities. But the problems and economic blowback from the Russian invasion of Ukraine has found its way to the Czech Republic's capital, as it has to many other cities across the continent. But like every nation in Europe, The story is intertwined with the long memory horizon that the people of these lands have, and it shapes not only the present, but will shape the future. As with Germany and Poland, the Czech Republic has a long and complicated history with Russia that goes all the way back to the 1600s and the Thirty Years War. That, when finished, saw half of the continent in ruin. During this time, what was left of the Czech people sought out any ally they could and were the most ardent supporters of pan-Slavism, which was the concept of subordinating all Slavic people under the protection of Russian Tsarism. The reason for this was that Russia had championed the cause of protecting Slavic nations from the interloping of German, Hungarian, Austrian and Ottoman powers in Eastern Europe. Through the centuries, Russia played a key role in the formation of the Czechoslovak state and the national army of the country. Even though the Cold War ended 30 years ago, there is still a large imprint of the Soviet Union's domination of Eastern Europe in the collective consciousness of the region. In the Czech Republic in particular, there is an acute memory of the violent suppression of the Prague Spring protests of 1968 and then the military occupation of the country for the next 25 years. However, since the end of the Cold War relations between the two nations have been relatively good, even if many still harbour distrust of Russia as a result of Soviet-era conflict within the country. In modern times, the Czech Republic sits comfortably in the heart of Europe. It is not on the front line with Russia like Poland, and has a more nuanced approach when it comes to its dealings with Russia. Miloš Zemin, president of the Czech Republic since 2013, and his breaking with NATO and the EU's Ukrainian policies has led to him being described as one of the European Union's most Kremlin-friendly leaders. In 2015, he described his visit to Moscow as an expression of thanks that we in this country don't have to speak German. He also described the war in Donbas from 2014 until the Russian invasion of 2022 as a civil war between two groups of Ukrainian citizens with foreign support. But his stance has since changed and in 2022 Zemin called for Russia to be expelled from the SWIFT system and called for tough sanctions on the country. While the general public in Czech have an unfavorable opinion, when it comes to Russia, it should be said that other Eastern European nations like Ukraine and Serbia also have very unfavorable opinions of the Czechs. Since the beginning of the conflict, the nation has taken in nearly 400,000 Ukrainian refugees and has become a major arms supplier to the government in Kyiv. Despite the vast majority of the nation's media, as well as what appears to be a majority of the population, signaling their unquestionable support for Ukraine, many in that same media gasp in horror at the large amount of support that Russia has within the country, and that there are many Czechs that understand the Russian point of view. This support of Russia, so the national media explains, is made up of motley collections of populists communist and anti-communist, both left-oriented and right-oriented persons, as well as individuals from both Christian and atheist circles, also those that hold disdain for NATO and the EU, and of course what they term as the stubborn anti-vaxxers. The collective establishment was stunned when approximately 70,000 Czechs took to the streets in a massive demonstration in Venselas Square in the heart of Prague in late 2022. The official reason was to protest the steep rise in energy prices, but the rally was also used to chant pro-Russian messages of support. On the stage, this politically desperate group of people railed against NATO, the US, the EU, and the government's pro-Ukrainian policy. It should be understood that many in the demonstration were not pro-Kremlin, but are very worried about the economic fallout of the sanctions being placed on Russia, as well as the steep rise in inflation, and how it will affect them personally. They also believe that the political posturing of the government did not have the country's best interests at heart. Many Czechs believe that the government has prioritized the situation in Ukraine over its own citizens. As an example of this, the producer of this documentary had this experience in his hotel in Prague late last year. So not really part of the
1: documentary, but an interesting anecdote of how yeah. because they're telling me in the reception that the electricity just cannot be turned on in the day, even though it's bloody cold. So yeah, it's it's real. This energy crisis is real.
8: Piotr Fiala, the current Czech prime minister, retorted that it was the protesters themselves that did not have the country's best interest at heart. He said, the protesters on Vencelas Square was called by forces that are pro-Russian, are close to extreme position and are against the interests of the Czech Republic. It is clear that the Russian propaganda and disinformation campaigns are present on our territory and some people simply listen to them. However, protests like that in Prague have been growing around the continent and the main theme is growing cost of living and inflation. That many, but not all, attribute to the sanctions placed on Russia after its February 2022 invasion of Ukraine and the economic blowback of these policies. Similar protests have taken place in the UK, France, Germany and in Hungary, each with their own set of priorities, but all essentially demanding something be done about inflation and the cost of living crisis that now grips the continent.
5: (laughs)
3: I'm going to
1: As President Vladimir Putin is the one that pulled the trigger and invaded neighboring Ukraine, it is he that carries the ultimate moral responsibility for this war. The death of thousands of Ukrainians and the destruction of the nation, along with the refugee crisis that has been created, it has all been a colossal disaster, and Mr. Putin is responsible. However, what is also clear is that NATO and the United States, in Particular, through its policy choices and flagrant acts of geopolitical posturing over the past several decades, carry their own responsibility for this war.
0: I, I do think there have been dramatic changes. I had a chance to visit with some of the analysts and operators upstairs, and we talked about the visit that Barbara and I had to uh, the Soviet Union. What used to be the Soviet Union—I got to learn to say Russian now—but uh, but with uh, with Yeltsin, and I think that the work of this agency and of the intelligence community uh, through the years really probably will never get the credit uh, that it deserves for for affecting these changes, for your role in in bringing about these changes, and having presidents hopefully make. Inform decisions on the world we, the world we face. But we did manage to work out uh, with Yeltsin a treaty uh, over there. Finalize a treaty that's many here in one way or another uh, contributed to.
1: From 1990 to the present, the expansion of NATO over a thousand miles eastward, pressing it toward the borders of Russia is in complete disregard to the assurances previously given to Moscow. In fact, according to an analysis by the National Security Archive of George Washington University, where relevant declassified documents are posted, a cascade of assurances about Soviet security were given by Western leaders to then-Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev and to other Soviet officials throughout the process of German unification in 1990 and on into 1991. In 2001, President George W. Bush unilaterally withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and then placed anti-ballistic launch systems in the newly joined NATO country. These launchers are also able to accommodate and fire offensive nuclear weapons at Russia such as nuclear-tipped Tomahawk cruise missiles. In 2008, the Bucharest memorandum was announced by NATO with the express intent of bringing both Georgia and Ukraine into NATO. This was viewed as an existential threat by Russia that shares a 2,000-kilometer border with Ukraine and comes as close as 650 kilometers to Moscow. The current head of the CIA, William J. Burns, who was then ambassador to Russia, was clear in communiques to Washington that the ascension of these countries was a red line for Russia that could not be crossed, as it perceives its encirclement, as well as seriously jeopardizing the nation's security concerns. Again, in 2008, just four months after the announcement of the Bucharest Memorandum, Russia entered into the so-called five-day war with Georgian forces, and these forces had been armed, funded, and trained by the United States. It should also be noted that the invasion occurred just days after the United States had led a 2,000-man military exercise in Georgia. It's widely understood that this action was taken to signal the United States and NATO, that Russia would not tolerate hostile NATO states that share borders with it, which at the time the Georgian government was. And as expected, the controlled legacy media in the United States characterized this clash as an unprovoked invasion. Between 2013 and 2014, the United States helped to build a foundation for and while the full extent of its involvement may not ever be known the united states may have directed and instigated the medan revolution which was an armed coup against the pro-russian democratically elected government of kiev and then replaced it with an unelective ukrainian ultra-nationalist pro-western one what we do know with absolute certainty is that a month before the coup in now leaked hacks of a phone call between then Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pite, well, it shows that the U.S. was working behind the scenes to determine who would replace the sitting democratically elected President of Ukraine after the violent coup that it helped foment. And in her words, in Victoria Nuland's own words, that the United States would help midwife this new post-coup government. Without a shred of irony, the controlled media didn't focus on the content of the phone call and the political implications of the U.S.'s involvement in the coup, but then focused on the source of the leak and of Ms. Newland's responding to possible objections by the European Union by stating, F the EU. In 2014, in response to the violent overthrow of the Ukrainian government, Russia annexed Crimea as it feared it would be cut off from its vital warm water naval base in Sevastopol. The 2014 Minsk II agreement, it was a feign by the countries that brokered it. France and Germany were supposedly trying to help halt the conflict that began when Russian-backed separatists seized large swaths of territory, the same territory incidentally that is now being contested. But this peace agreement was brokered on lies. Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany at the time herself, has in a recent interview with Die Zeit explained that it was to allow for a Ukrainian arms buildup.
2: The 2014 Minsk agreement was an attempt to give Ukraine time. It also used this time to become stronger, as you can see today. Strangely,
1: now that Germany has claimed credit for derailing the Minsk II agreements, the Ukrainian President Zelensky has himself claimed that he personally refused to implement the deal for peace in Donbass. Zelensky said he viewed the agreement as a concession on Ukraine's part and never once actually sought to implement them. Instead, they were merely used to exchange prisoners with the two breakaway Donbass publics. Whoever is at fault for the lies that led to the collapse of the Minsk II agreement, Ukraine's failure to implement the agreement, which would have seen the breakaway territories reintegrated into the country but retain special status, has ultimately led to the ongoing conflict. Since the violent overthrow of the democratically elected government of Ukraine in 2014, the US-led NATO alliance had begun a massive military aid program to help with what the State Department called the interoperability with NATO. Why this is important is then Ukraine was not part of NATO, nor is it now. But NATO has held countless military exercises directed toward Russia which included live fire drills to simulate attacks on Russia's air defenses. Despite the ever cacophony of increasing objections from the Kremlin, NATO categorically refused to back down on its desire for Ukraine to join the alliance, regardless of the outcome and repercussions that we are now witnessing with the war that began in February, 2022. In 2019, the United States unilaterally withdrew from the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which it believed gave them a tactical advantage over Russia with first-strike capabilities. Ex-Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett confirmed that a peace deal that he had brokered in March of 2022 had all been agreed upon. However, the peace plan was scuttled by Washington as it vetoed the agreement and that, in his words, the U.S. and its allies decided to keep striking Russian President Vladimir Putin and blocked the agreement. Remarks, of course, that he has since walked back. What this does show, though with absolute clarity, is that decisions about this war are not being made solely by the government in Kiev or Kyiv as it has been rebranded in the English-speaking world, but ultimately in Washington and in London. In sum, this is just a brief synopsis of the countless provocations by the United States and NATO against the security concerns of Russia. Security concerns that they completely disregarded. And these provocations are such that had Russia directed the same level of geopolitical antagonism toward the United States, war would have long ago been sparked. Any kind of compromise or any kind of negotiation has been resoundingly rejected by President Zelensky of the Ukraine, and the consequential results of this policy has seen much of his country and its people laid to waste. What is of most import is that the United States and its NATO allies have engendered in the post-coup government that it helped midwife in Ukraine an uncompromising position with its relations with Russia and then put the nation on course that has led to this war. Had the United States been encircled and provoked, even to a very minuscule degree, as has Russia, it would call its actions to secure control of territories that it borders and making them free of offensive threats as one of national security. And such actions would not be spun by the American media as the delusions of a madman president bent on expansion but one of a president securing the security of its nation. Again it should be clear that the ultimate moral responsibility for this war rests on Russian President Vladimir Putin as he is the one that gave the order to invade neighboring Ukraine. But the United States and NATO clearly did more than their fair share to build the groundwork for the destruction and death now being visited upon the
7: At the end of a six-day fight that astonished the world and shook the Kremlin to its foundations, Hungary was free, free to fraternize on its own borders and Russian supplies to the stricken city of Budapest along roads littered with burnt-out red tanks disabled by almost unarmed men fired by passion for liberty. Flaring swiftly from student demonstrations into open revolution, the pent-up hatreds of oppression set Russian might reeling and forced withdrawal of the red yoke. But even as these scenes were recorded, rumors flared of the re-entry of Russian forces and new fighting. The beautiful city of Budapest, scarred by conflict, again faces a Russian onslaught, even before the debris of the fight for freedom is cleared from the streets. In startling developments, Hungary broke with the satellite Warsaw Pact military alliance, announced neutrality, and pleaded for priority on the United Nations agenda. Then word came that Russian forces were massing, and all communication with the West was cut off. Hungary's newfound freedom is menaced before the martyrs of revolution go to their rest. A wave of outrage and protest sweeps across free Europe in the wake of Russia's bloody stamping out of Hungary's anti-Soviet revolt. In West Berlin, torches lit a mass meeting of thousands. In Paris, angry crowds attack the stone fortress that houses the French Communist Party, setting fire to the massive structure during a four-hour riot. Holland, after a nationwide moment of silence and sympathy for Hungary, crowds stormed Communist Party headquarters in Amsterdam. One of the most orderly cities in Europe saw angry fighting, a fiery demonstration that summed up the continent's reaction to the Red Army's sack of Budapest.
9: Budapest has a long history that traces its roots to Roman times and the beauty of the city cannot be understated. The two cities, Buda and Pasht, were unified in 1873 and is the largest city on the Danube River. Hungary has always been a fawn in the side of the EU during the height of the migrant crisis when then-Chancellor Angela Merkel told the world that there's no upper limit to the number of people that the bloc could absorb. Hungary quickly built a border fence on its frontier. Since that time, Hungary has defied the EU on many policy points, and in particular mass migration from outside the bloc. It even implemented what has been dubbed, the Stop Soros law, after the billionaire George Soros whom the Hungarian government accuses of supporting mass irregular migration into the EU. The 2018 bill outlaws people and organisations from helping migrants apply for asylum if they arrive from a country where their life was not at risk. However, the mass migration of people hoping to make it to countries like Germany, France, Sweden and the UK via Hungary has not been abated. In 2022, this year, border guards along the Serbian-Hungarian border have already prevented more than 240,000 illegal border crossing attempts and apprehended around 2,500 people smugglers. For its stance on mass migration into its nation, Hungary has been threatened many times with expulsion from the EU. Hungary has also enraged Brussels by not only refusing mass migration into its territory, but has embarked on a policy to increase Hungarians to have more children. Through our tax financial incentives, the nation has seen its total fertility rate increase. In fact, many are calling it the policy-induced baby boom. While at home, the current Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, is seen by many as corrupt. He is inside the nation and abroad also seen as one of the few leaders in Europe that actually seems to at least consider the future and the faith of his nation. Hungary as well. Since the outset of the conflict, Ukraine has also defied Brussels and its demands that the country follows EU dictates and obeys the political consensus of the bloc. In what was called a consultation of the public, it released results from a poll it has undertaken that showed that 97% of Hungarians reject the current sanctions on Russia, as they believed they would cause serious damage to the nation's economy. Alexandra Sankirai, a government spokeswoman, said that the restrictions the EU had imposed on Russia over Ukraine had failed to stop the conflict, but caused a lot of economic problems for Europe. In this vein, Hungarians tend to reject all restrictions and planned gas sanctions. This mailing in pool was quickly dismissed by Brussels. But it is interesting that Hungary is alone, the only nation in the EU to actually consult its citizens in a pool on the effects of the EU sanctions and the effect that they have had on their daily lives. Hungary is a nation that is very dependent upon Russian energy and has long been critical of sanctions placed on Russia by Brussels. Since the outset of the conflict, as these sanctions have exacerbated the energy crisis in Europe and have called fuel prices as well as cost of living to surge. Hungary has also blocked EU sanctions on the Russian nuclear industry. As nuclear energy is essential to the country and to allow the sanctions would be devastating to the country Hungary has also been very much vocal about what it calls the brutal military draft in Ukraine meaning the press gang rowing Ukraine conscripting any man that can find but in particularly forced conscriptions of Transcarpathian Hungarians the Hungarian foreign minister Peter Ceaurtu bluntly stated that the Kiev crisis is not our war, but it hurts the Hungarian people. He also said that peace is rarely spoken about, and those who talk about it are even stigmatized and criticized. And like Poland, there is a significant ethnic minority of Hungarians living in the Transcarpathian region of Ukraine. And because of this and the ukraine laws that discriminate against non-ukrainians in many spheres of public life there have long been simmering tension between budapest and kiev ukraine authorities for their part have expressed anger that budapest is undermining its authority through policies including offering hungarian citizenship to ethnic hungarians that live in Transcarpathia. having broken ranks with brussels on many key policy issues there are many including luxembourg foreign minister the dutch prime minister and many others that have called for expulsion of hungary from european union how that would happen however is another story as there are no legal instruments to expel a member nation poland has long been accused of being Hungarian co-conspirator in bucking policy emanating out of Brussels, and in particular its demand that both nations be made open for mass immigration. However, with the outset of the conflict in Ukraine, Poland has seen itself become the indispensable frontier of the bloc and has for now redeemed itself by supporting the sanctions regime of the EU and for taking in so many refugees. Hungary, on the other hand, is the outsider that refuses to come to heel by looking out for the interests of the Hungarian people first, it seems as the nation that is undermining the common response of the sanctions imposed by Brussels. Either way, it does not look like Hungary will rejoin the fold anytime soon and will continue to be a thorn in the side of Brussels for the duration of this conflict.
1: What's clear is that the aggressive policies of the United States and NATO over the past several decades laid the groundwork for the conflict that is currently playing out today that the needless destruction and massive loss of life in that country was in fact the result of provocations so blatant that the point was reached within the Kremlin that saw the induction of Ukraine into NATO as an existential threat to the nation, and war was the only answer to its reddest of red lines being crossed. However, context History and balance is all but absent from the accounts of the Western media. All that is spun is of an innocent nation being attacked without reason, without cause, or without warning. That Russia is helmed by a madman and that Putin needs to be held in check by the West in the very same manner as was Adolf Hitler, and that NATO and the United States only seeks peace, stability, and the spread of its progressive values abroad. The provocations by the United States and NATO against Russia, had they been directed toward their own security concerns, would have long ago been cases belli for war. The rank hypocrisy, blunderous policy toward Russia, and the total dismissal of its security concerns are in fact what has led to the current conflagration. As both sides dig in their heels looking for total victory, and with the West providing a blank check to Ukraine, and both sides providing the cannon fodder, a negotiated end to hostilities seems almost impossible. The Ukrainian landmine was laid when the Soviet Union collapsed. Foreign policy experts grounded in realism understood this and that the disagreements over whose territory belonged to who and how they should be divvied up has smoldered since 1990. U.S. foreign policy analysts, again those grounded in reality, have been sounding the alarm for a quarter of a century that to continue to expand the NATO military alliance to the border of a major power armed with nuclear weapons would not end well. And the current war in Ukraine is definitive proof that they were right, while those that continually disregard the security concerns of Russia were not. Again, it must be reiterated and stressed that Vladimir Putin alone is ultimately responsible for this war as he is the one that pulled the trigger. The destruction of property, of infrastructure, of lives, and of the peace. Vladimir Putin is ultimately responsible, but he is surely not alone in helping bring about this catastrophe to Ukraine. With regards to the Russian state, what's clear is that internally, it leans heavily toward authoritarianism. No one should deny this or obfuscate this fact. It lacks open, clear and fair elections, an independent judiciary, clearly delineated civil liberties, organized opposition parties that are free from persecution, as well as the rule of law. Russia has none of these, but neither does the Ukraine, and this is demonstrably true, whether the establishment or their talking heads in the controlled media admit this or not. Since the outset of the conflict in Ukraine the American rationale for its part in the war has transformed from one of a humanitarian effort in nature to one that seeks to degrade Russia and if possible depose and arrest Vladimir Putin put him on trial for war crimes and dismember Russia along ethnic lines. Or, to put it another way, and more simply, the policy has transformed from humanitarian in nature to one of proxy intervention. Chaz Freeman, previously Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, noted, Everything we are doing, rather than accelerating an end to the fighting and some compromise seems to be aimed at prolonging the fighting, assisting the Ukrainian resistance, which is a noble cause I suppose, but will result in a lot of dead Ukrainians as well as dead Russians. We will fight to the last Ukrainian for Ukrainian independence. Gilbert Doctorow, a Brussels-based political analyst, has stated that Be careful what you wish for. If Mr. Putin were to be overturned, who would take his place? Some little namby-pamby? Some new drunkard like the first president Boris Yeltsin? Or somebody who is a Rambo and just ready to push the button? I think it's extremely imprudent for a country like the United States to invoke regime change in a country like Russia. It's almost suicidal. In fact, at the time of publishing, the United States has allocated $113 billion in aid to Ukraine since the conflict there began last February, around 60% of which went to the country's military, which is equal to the entire military budget of Russia. In fact, it is on par with the military expenditures of the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Japan. Moreover, a classified report last year found that the Pentagon was unable to keep tabs on tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons sent to Ukraine. Details of that report were revealed, apparently inadvertently, in a hearing of the House Arms Services Committee in Washington in late February 2023. The classified document that was mentioned is backed up by a slew of reports also suggesting that weapons often disappear once delivered. Reports from last year, backed up by Amnesty International, claimed that as little as 30% of Western weapons sent to Ukraine were actually making it to the front lines. American and Canadian officials admitted at the time that they had no idea where most of these weapons were ending up, with one U.S. intelligence source telling CNN that they vanish into a big black hole once they enter Ukraine. Thus, with this much money sloshing around, and as this war continues while the Ukrainian state is destroyed, there is very little room for a negotiated settlement between Russia and Ukraine, but especially from those nations that are funding its war effort. And it must be said, there's a lot of money changing hands, a truth of every war—that that is thoroughly and currently ignored by our controlled media. And to reiterate, the ex-Israeli prime minister confirmed that a peace deal that he had brokered had been all but agreed upon by all parties in March of 2022. However, that peace plan was scuttled as Washington vetoed the agreement and that, in his words, the US and its allies decided to keep striking Russian President Vladimir Putin and blocked the agreement. And if this war is being decided in Washington rather than in Kiev, which it looks very much as though is the reality of the situation, it may well be fought to the last Ukrainian for the sake of Ukrainian independence. Inter-community violence, such as border wars, is very complex in nature. It has deep roots and the people living on these frontiers have long memory horizons. This fratricidal conflict, that of the Ukraine and Russia, well, it's like every other war that has preceded it. As those with little to no voice lose everything, while those with power not only build their riches, but play with their lives as though they were pawns on a chessboard. There are, however, key questions that are absent in the public discourse. Many that would perhaps like not to think about or even discuss, but they are pertinent. Questions such as, what kind of future is Zelensky's Ukraine fighting for? And what kind of future are Western taxpayers paying for in this troubled ex-Soviet state? The birth rate in Ukraine over the past several decades often dropped below what experts call a very low fertility rate of 1.3, and that is when a population begins to shrink at an ever-increasing rate. Ukraine had one of the lowest birth rates on earth, and then the war happened. Approximately one-quarter of the country's total population has simply left and a significant amount of these will never return. Men between the ages of 18 and 60 have no right to leave Ukraine, and many are being press-ganged into service, and literally being dragged off the streets and put into uniform and sent to the front lines. So, with an obscene number of men on both sides being put into the meat grinder with ever-increasing numbers of casualties and no hope of any kind of a negotiated settlement, and with a significant number of Ukrainian women now having left for the West with no intention of return, how does this bode for the new Ukraine at the end of the war? The time when Russia could quickly wrap up its so-called special operation, well, it's long gone. The situation for a quick and clean war is now hopeless, and according to Zelensky, he will never negotiate with Putin. For his part, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban has been clear in what he sees in the future of Ukraine, when he recently stated that Russia cannot allow NATO to establish its presence in Ukraine. So Putin's goal is to turn the country into unmanaged ruins so that the West cannot present it as a prize. Now it's Afghanistan, no man's land. The sad truth, however, is even worse. None of this was necessary. Had Ukraine and its Western backers adhered to the Minsk II accords and given the concessions in their eastern provinces that they agreed to, that being more autonomy within the country and not having spent the last 8 years attacking the separatists in the region that ended with a death toll in the tens of thousands, simply there would be no war in Ukraine today. But that ship has sailed and here we are. Ukraine no matter the outcome of this war, no matter who wins, it will be a husk of a nation for the foreseeable future. Its infrastructure smashed whatever economy it had before the war in tatters. And with an ever-declining population, put simply, Ukraine will be a failed state on the European continent. And because of the support that Western Europeans gave to the country to continue a fight they could clearly not have hoped to engage in on their own, it will be on the hook financially to support Ukraine Probably indefinitely. Perhaps the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is correct that Europe needs its own military bloc free of American influence. In an interview given on the 2nd of March 2023 with the Swiss magazine Weltwoche, he accused the U.S. of dragging Europe into a conflict that cannot be won and risked a global war. The solution, Orban said, would be a European NATO, arguing that America's desire for further expansion of its influence is what led to the current tensions between the West and Russia. He also reiterated that I understand what Putin said about the US crossing Russian red lines, but I do not accept what he did. Until there is some kind of cessation of hostilities, more and more people will suffer and more and more people will die. Ukraine is being wrecked and nothing will change this. There will be more orphans and more widows, more men's lives cut short, more innocent life will be lost. This war is about more than good versus evil. It's about more than Ukraine and NATO versus Russia. It's geopolitical. It's about power politics. It's about finance. It's about pipelines and energy. It's about regionalism and globalism. It's about the petrodollar and, of course, like all wars before it, it's about money. But none of these issues matters to those, through no choice of their own, have had to give up their lives, had their lives and their families' lives destroyed, or have had to lay their loved ones to rest. This is all the result of the decision of others. But the innocents have names, the soldiers have families, the widows have a face, the orphans had fathers. The war in Ukraine has been an unmitigated disaster. And if there can be no negotiation, then some want this to be a fight to the last Ukrainian. consequences of this war will be far-reaching. 2022 will be just as salient a dividing line between the unipolar world order in the post-Cold War era as the fall of the Soviet Union was geopolitically in 1991. With the United States dismantling the current global order as it comes at the expense of American power, the competition of great powers has returned to the world scene. The Ukraine, for its part, will, when the dust settles, be viewed as the coffin lid being shut on the unipolar and global order that has defined the post-Cold War era. New alliances are already forming, and a great number of nations are scrambling for regional influence and power. And this is making the world much less stable and much more divided than almost any point in the past 85 years.